2: You're listening to Real Life, a podcast from the Nation Network. I got 50, I got 50 for Brought to you by Finning Canada, the parts you need when you want them. Welcome back to another edition of the Real Life podcast brought to you by Finning Canada. Great products and really good calendars, just ask struds. As uh, joined as always, I'm Jason Greger with former NHLer, current host, on City TV, Jason Strudwick, and uh, we have a special guest, the first Olympic gold medalist we've ever had on the show. Mm-hmm. He's a better skater than Struts. He's Now, I know we, we might have to compare your figure skating <laughs> abilities uh, in this show. Uh, Dave Pelche mm-hmm.
3: joins us. Dave, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jason.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you know. Dave Pelche is a good friend of mine. And David, um, when I went to do the Battle of the Blades, he took me on the ice, and um, we're really good friends. But when we started, I had my, uh, my uh, figure skates on, and he and his uh, partner, Jamie Slay, she was on as well. But Dave turned from friend to coach. And he was yelling at me, tell me what to do. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm just about for fun. He's like, "Crossover, Keep your back straight. Shoulders over. I'm like, oh, my God. What just happened? And so for an hour, he got me going. And then uh, it was great to be on the ice with you. It actually really got me comfortable. It's like we're,
3: we're talking to a millennium. You know, so sensitive. <laughs> you have to check your tone. You can't push them too much. Yeah, I thought you were old school. Well, I was,
0: but I was just—I was very sensitive at that moment, putting the figure skates on with two gold medalists I think on ice with uh, me.
3: You kept your hockey element on too.
0: I did. I had my helmet, my elbow pads, my gloves. I had everything, and this guy's yelling at me. Jamie was much more sensitive.
3: Yeah. So when you start a podcast, like, do you always like start beat like that? Like we were having a nice conversation, and all of a sudden, Jason did the introduction and. It's like you picked up. I mean, you're still in your pajama. You're not going to fool <laughs> no, anyone. <laughs> it's not a
0: pajama. I never wear PJs. I never wear PJs ever, but I would never wear them out of the house. You strike me as the kind of guy who'd walk through Walmart with PJs on and a, uh, uh, some, what is that thing called to floss your teeth?
3: <laughs> I you do. Know? I do carry floss always. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, coming here, though, I, was, I brought my son, uh, Jesse, and coming here, I explained to him what we we're going to do. Okay. And, uh, I, you know, he knows you, but obviously he knows of you because he said Jason Greger, and this is a true story. Jason Greger, he's not very nice. <laughs> I said, "Well, why would you, why would you say that?" I said, "Well, I heard him on the radio say this guy is a pathetic loser." <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I said, "Well, you know, he receives messages that are." Telling him that he's way worse than a pathetic loser, so he has to reply with, with what he's got. But, I might have been I might have been uh, mocking Seinfeld at some point, but he, Jesse right.
2: could be right. There's a few times where uh, every now and then you have to lay down the hammer. I don't worry about it. But, yeah, uh, but
3: that's probably because of the messages you receive. You know. Oh, for sure. I yeah. don't remember. I mean, sometimes you're on the radio in my car, and like uh, every day from two to six. Is probably <laughs> no, not what it two is. to six, but uh, from three forty to by the time we get home, three forty-five. So that's <laughs> <what> I mean, <laughs> when I pick Jesse up. And it puts me to sleep. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, okay, you I'll these make down? the jokes. You no, 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 right. no. no you put that paper real life, away and Real-life stories. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah.
2: You told me to come here and talk about life. Yeah, well, well we do. We do want right. to talk about that. I, yes. I, for people who don't know, uh, you are, of course, uh, the the skating coach right now for the Edmonton But we're not going to talk about that. We're, we're going to talk about a lot of different things. Um, I want to talk about you. You you go into figure skating. And I've seen you play hockey now, and I remember the first time you came out and played hockey with us, and I was like, "Man, this guy's the best crossover I've ever seen, like mm. unbelievable." Then I saw you on breakaways, I was like, "Wow, this guy's like worse than Todd Marchant." So, <laughs>
3: have, have you improved your breakaways? No, actually, I'm uh, in beer league history. I am, I think, zero and eight in in shootout. Zero is and that, eight. Is that shootout? No, shutout. A shootout? Uh, shootout. shootout. I think shootout. that happens after yeah. the game, right? Yeah. I'm zero and eight. I usually shot beside the net or. Cough up the pucks. I have no hands and it's it's the way it is. But speed never goes into a slump. And, uh, <laughs> you know I like that. It's you're good always line. fast. Once true. you're fast, you're always fast. That's true. But uh, now did you play hockey growing up at all? I did till Pee Wee. Tell Pee Wee. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. this is this interesting? Are we like? Yeah, yeah, do yeah. you well, regret yeah, yeah. the choice of a guess yet? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yes. I played till Pee Wee. And then I made a choice, um, an uninformed choice, but I will say that at the time. You know, I am from a very, very small area where we had no history of hockey players making it anywhere. So as a kid, you don't know it's possible because you haven't seen it with your own eyes, right? It's the inaccessible. And people growing up in Edmonton, they always have access to, you know, the Oilers and now the Oil Kings. So there was one guy that did figure skating that made it to the Canadian Nationals. And I thought that was Who is that? unbelievable. His name is Francois Beaulieu. Okay. Mm. Yeah, yeah. François. But he, he, Francois was a great guy. He, he did come last, but he didn't make it. Right? Yeah. And to me, already there, seeing that, I knew it was possible to make it there because I knew someone that made it there. So anyway, I made that choice and I, I was a pleaser. I wanted to please my mom. And my mom always made me believe that, uh, well, you can choose. Whatever you want, as long as it's figure skating. That was a reverse <laughs> psychology. Yeah, And, uh, oh, I hated it with passion. And then I saw uh, the 88 Olympics, and I saw pair skating on TV. And that's what I said. Well, if you want me to keep up with that sport, then let me, let me try pair skating. Just so you could hang out with the girls. Well, I thought lifting girls were a lot more fun than doing the Canasta and the Willow and the Ten Fox. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think I'm I'm still right. I'm yeah. still right on my, well, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. There's no doubt about it. Now, when you decided to play or only do figure skating, did you, were you good at that? Like, were you dominating your age group, your category? Figure no, figure I was, skating?
3: I never dominated until I was, oof, I don't know if I ever dominated. Um, I'd say 18, 19. And 18 tell, or 19? Yeah, I, I tell you why. And this Why'd is Why'd you a, keep going? <laughs> no, be. Um uh, well Well look yeah. in the mirror, Struts. You didn't uh, dominate till uh, you were eighteen or nineteen still, either. But but, but no,
0: but in speakers cane, I mean you have to have some uh, you know, like and I'm not being disrespectful, but no. I mean at, at at some point is there not where they're saying, well listen, this guy wouldn't invest time in this guy because num- number one, close.
3: let's define uh domination. And does, okay. do you mean winning every competition?
0: I'm having yes, having success. Well, you
3: know, I, I had success once a year maybe that okay. would keep me going. Okay. I knew that I could be better. But this is what my parents did. And this is a very hot topic in sports in general. And my parents did that without knowing they were doing it. Because I didn't do that seriously until I was 15, 16. All right. So I went to compete provincially against people who skated 12 months of the year from the age of seven and eight. Exactly what the hockey culture has turned into. Which is wrong. It's figure skating culture forever, for as long as I've known, right? And so by the time I hit my stride and it was my decision to be good at that sport, I was 17, 18, and then I decided to specialize and really put everything I had, all my eggs in one basket. Now I've had conversation with uh, great friends who throw that in my face. I said, well, you're doing too much. The kids are doing too much. Well, you did it and it worked out for you. They don't know I didn't skate in the summer until I was 14 years old Mm -hmm. and summer meaning three weeks. Just so, obviously, I could compete in, in the winter. Nowadays, I mean, I say to, to the parents, you know, don't do, don't specialize, stay off the ice in the summer, do something else. And when they throw the figure skating, then my other example to them is, well, yeah, that's true. Figure skaters are on the ice from the age of 7 to 8, 12 months of the year. By the age of 16, they usually quit. Really, really <laughs> rare you'll see somebody just going through those years and keeping up with the sport because they're burnt out. We experience it, but what people see on TV are the people that went through these. They don't see the 95% who have quit because they just they're done with it. And so I, I believe that the decision we make today, we will see the result. You know, ten years from now.
2: No, I'm, I'm with you wholeheartedly. So, I, I think there's a little bit of a change. You're seeing a lot more athletes come out. I know even general managers in the WHL they look for athletes, kids who played baseball and kids who play football. Because, and Strudgs, you know you've coach a lot of kids there's different abilities and how you move and how your body functions and all if you do is play hockey mentally you get burnt out by it and and i think a lot of parents well my son really wants it yeah but sometimes the kid thinks because you really want it that they really want it and and if you tell your son or daughter to go play hockey and then go and then register them in soccer and baseball and football at least try the other sports it's way better for them. and it, and i think we're slowly starting to see that but i'm with dave like spring hockey My nephews played at one. My nephew's in the WHL. He just got drafted. He played spring hockey one year when he was 14. And my brother, who had played minor pro hockey, said he doesn't need to play spring hockey. You have all these playing all the time, and they think more is better, right? Well, Malcolm Gladwell says 10,000 hours. Well, 10,000 hours doesn't have to start at six years old.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I agree with you. Kids don't know what they want. I chose figure skating because I seriously did not want to disappoint my mom. I knew my mom loved it. She had three boys. The three of us did it. Two of my brothers didn't care about Nandeshi. They broke her heart.
1: (laughs) I didn't. So are you her favorite?
3: (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, probably a part of me enjoyed the competition and as a kid, the attention that it brought if I brought back home a medal, right? But the truth is, I don't know. I I just wanted to do what my parents wanted me to do. And so I did that, but I didn't say, oh, yeah, one day I'm going to become an Olympian. Like, that was never part of my dream. Even... And I asked my son, he, he has an idea, he wants to play in the NHL, but like he doesn't really understand what playing in the NHL means. No. He also has 10 other plans, you yeah. know, plan B, plan C, plan A1, and it changes every week. And so I ask him whatever he wants to do. If he says, yeah, I want to do it, you know, we talk about it, and we said, okay, well, that takes away time for this and that, and then go from there, I expose him to as much as possible. Now... You get into figure skating, eighteen or nineteen. You felt like you started to be
2: good. When did the Olympics become a realistic goal for you? Was it at eighteen? You said, "You know what?
3: Hey, I think I can represent Canada." Or was it later? When did that happen? You know, at the age of sixteen, I qualified for the nationals, and I, I had no clue that I, I it was in pairs. Yeah, in pairs. And I who was, was your partner then? Uh, and a little girl named Julie Laporte. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And Julie and I, we won uh, nationals in novice and junior. Okay. So we, we were pretty good. But my first year to nationals, I was 16 and I went to the provincial championships, we came in second. And then they told me, I made the Quebec provincial team. Like this is how much I did not follow the sport or even cared about it that much. And then we had to qualify. So for the nationals, the next competition after the provincial championships where they called the Eastern divisional. So that's part of Ontario Maritimes and Quebec. We came second, well, we moved on to nationals and I said, oh, that's great. We're going to nationals. I barely spoke English. It was in Saskatoon in 1991. And side story, I get there and, you know, we compete. And in my idea, we're coming last because the only person I know that's been to nationals has come last. So I'm going there to come last. Well, we freaking come third. And next thing I know, I'm on a junior national team. And all of this was never part of a plan. It was just one thing at a time, just dealing with what the new reality was. So after the competition, I'm 16 years old and... Oh, let's go out, with a couple of guys will go to a restaurant and we'll order a beer. I didn't speak English, so I said, <laughs> I said beer. She said, apparently, she said, well, can I see some ID? Large. <laughs> and all my friends from Montreal were mostly bilingual. So this, she didn't ask you the size, buddy. <laughs> so that was my Saskatoon uh, experience for having a beer after the competition.
0: You would have fit right in, there's no doubt about it. So you start having a little bit of success there, but you know, did that change your mindset? Did you all of a sudden start taking it more seriously?
3: Uh well, I always did take it seriously while I was doing it, but I never wrote down, I was never that kid that, you know, had dreams of being mm-hmm. I like yes, I wanted to win. So after that third place at Nationals, he said, "Well, you've been invited to try out to make the Junior World Championships, so you have to win a competition in the summer against three or four other Canadian team, and whoever wins goes to the Junior World Championships. They invited us because they wanted a competition out of it, but they didn't want us to go. Mm -hmm. They wanted another team to go, and it's it's okay. It's fine. It's politics. A lot of politics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, I've I've been involved in hockey minors for three or four years, and believe me, minor hockey makes figure skating look like a yoga place sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, there was politics. So we showed up at the summer competition, and we won. And usually they announced the junior world team and they waited another two months just to make sure, (laughs) you know, they couldn't, anyway. So we ended up going to the junior worlds and we came fifth. Like this was happening real fast. Like from, I don't even know how I got to the nationals to a couple of months later, I'm fifth in the world in junior. Then I realized, okay, maybe I can seriously make a go at it. Mm -hmm. And then it went on, we started winning and that's when I figured out that I was pretty good at competing. You know, some people are great at practicing and some people are better at when the stage is bigger, they, they step up their game. And I say that with humility. I was just, like, competition did not scare me. I actually, you know, my game went up and for some reason. I skated better and I was never really scared compared to when I was a kid. I was scared shitless because, and I read an article about that and it started to come out and I think I saw something on Twitter. The worst thing when you're a kid is the drive back home right, after uh, a hockey game. That's mm. where the kids fear the most, is the drive back home with the parents. Ooh. They hate it. And that's the reason why kids quit, quit. sport, most huh. likely. They play sport, number one, to be with their friends. And I look at my son, speaking from experience, he loves his team. Really, the, the, the winning and the losing, it's is just, he yeah. it doesn't care. And I remember him uh, as uh, initiation second year, and you know he's picking up daisies, and one day he shows up and he, he's, beating the guy wide, and he's going, and he's scoring. I was like, oh, this is it. He figured it out. So I'm on the bench. He's coming, and he's talking to his buddy, uh, Brett, and they're waving. I said, like, okay, maybe they want to talk about the play they just did. And yeah. I was like, uh, can we have a play date? And, Do you know where my Transformers are? They just <laughs> <laughs> have no connection yeah. to what they did. They just want to play. Yeah, they're just having right? fun. Yeah. That's how it and should be. so, yeah, for the longest time, like my, my, my parents were detrimental to, to, to my career. And then one day, they actually figured it out because the ride back home, believe me, going from Gaspé area to Montreal, it's a six-hour drive. So you're driving there. You're cutting the snowstorm. So you sleep over in some side highway hotel, and then you get out the car in West Montreal, and you've been in the car. Basically, you've been gone for 24 hours. Put on your skate and go win a competition, son. <laughs> All right, so come last. Get back in the car. We're driving back six hours, and for six hours, sometimes I would hear it. And then one day my my parents sat me down and they apologized. And they said, you know what? We, we haven't been helping you at all. So from now on, whether you skate good or bad, it's not going to change our behavior towards you. And that's the day I started winning competition and I, I was not scared of competition. Mm. Now I've had this conversation with them and I don't think they understand English anyway so they they'll never know they don't even know what they don't even know what a pubca- podcast is. So <laughs> I can say that without any fear of retribution <laughs> right. or right. Right. my mom trying to right. poison me next time right. I go visit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we
0: know it's funny to talk about uh, that, you know, uh, Pat Quinn had a, a, a saying he said you're a, a morning glory skater. You'd have a, look great in the morning skate and then at night they were terrible. So what do you think you had because a lot of people are not built like that they're good in practice, not a competition what what trait do you think you have that makes you successful because a lot of people would want to know what it is
3: I think it was it was uh, I was aware of my my strength and I was also aware of my uh, limitation so since I didn't have the ballet training of my competitions mostly there were Russians or, or Chinese or you know East Eastern European which you know grew up in the communist sport environment where you know everything is regimented, you know, you kind of come in with a little bit of a complex of inferiority because, you know, your lines are not as sophisticated. Their speed were unbelievable. But I knew I could out train pretty much everyone. Like I wasn't scared of just getting on the ice. And if you asked me to do 10, I'd do 15. I was that kind of kid because I had to compensate. So knowing my weakness and my I mean my limitation, my strength, I said, well, if I had the best work ethic, then, you know, that's already more than half the battle. The second thing is I treated every day like a competition and that made it hard, very hard for my partners because, you know, I had four, which is not unusual. You know, you outgrow your partners when you're novice, junior and senior. And when you go into senior rank, you it's like having another, you know, D partner. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, it was I was a very intense person to be in every day with and train because whether it was a Tuesday in February, to me in my head I was at, I was at the Olympics whether it was a you know October 15 I was never that kind of athlete and I've seen that all along I don't have to worry it's not a competition. No. Practice to me was like exactly like a competition. I could feel the nerves I, I was I could feel everything I was feeling when I competed. So in in my mind I think if I was able to put myself in that situation competing was just just, just another day at the office. And I've talked a lot about it to a lot of different athletes, and not a lot of people has felt that. And so I figured that's what I did; and that that worked out so well. I, I mean, I I did work harder than pretty much everyone, and I was not the most talented. I swear to God, talent just got me to a certain place, and then my work ethic got me somewhere else.
2: Dave Pelce joins us on the Real Life Podcast, Gregor and Stradwick with you. It's now being you mentioned how your son Jesse loves being with his team. You were in a pair, but. I'm sure you. You know, a lot of times when you're younger and juniors, you know your partners four or five years younger, so you probably aren't hanging out together off of the ice. Did you ever? Did you ever miss being in a team thing? And is that why you joined men's league because you like the team atmosphere, or were you you better kind of being a lone wolf as an athlete? Because some people have to have that mentality that they can push themselves without needing the teammates or the fear of letting them down.
3: I was for most of my life a terrible teammate. Yeah, I was the one telling the guys you don't work hard enough. <laughs> I, I was uh-huh. I was I was a heel. I have no problem saying that. Okay. And uh, if you didn't pull your weight, like I would, I would tell you on the ice because I knew I was, I would never criticize someone that that I, for something I'm not doing myself. Okay. And since I didn't have much social skills as a young guy, I was, you know, I should have I should have never said things I said to some of my teammates for sure. But I was, I was more of a a I was made, to be an individualist. You know, or maybe the sp- sport of figure skating created me like that. I okay. don't know. But one day, and I, when I started skating with Jamie and it was never personal because I knew Jamie was, um, when I know you're putting the effort, if you do a mistake, I don't care, you know, but I know I had some partner where it was, you know, making an effort was like, you shouldn't be doing sport. You're not an athlete. Just go home seriously. And, uh, but with Jamie, I knew she, she put in the effort and when I would get mad at myself, not at her, it would, it wouldn't make her feel good, let's say. So one day she told me like, if you want this to work, you have to stop getting mad on the ice because I'm going to take the plane home. We were in Montreal and I just figured it out. I figured that it doesn't matter how I feel. If I want the best out of Jamie, out of my partner, it's more important for how I make her feel. Now, if I make her feel good, then she'll do what I want her to do which is, you know, land the jump, be happy, feel good about herself. So it's not about me anymore. It's about my, my partner. It's about my teammate. And the day I realized this is how it should work, then that's, that's that's we. I mean, we had a great career because of that and because of the fact that we learned to communicate. But before that, I was a terrible teammate.
2: Now, everybody's seen your career and obviously uh, at the Olympics uh, when you win the gold on a delay, by the way, which I'm sure sucked in one sense because you didn't get to enjoy it at that moment. But you got that moment a little bit later on. But in figure skating, you know, you have your, your competition, you have your short program, your long program. You do that a few times. So, so people watch that. But you're training for 10 months of the year behind the scenes, right, to build up to that time. How many times did you drop her?
3: How many bad spills did you guys have over the years? Oh, let's see. I've skated pairs from 1988 to about three or four years ago, and I think I fell four times. Really? That's it? Yeah, only once with, oh, no, I did twice with Jamie, maybe twice with my first partner. Okay. As a kid, it's pretty normal. You're not that strong. And uh, I took the, uh, never once my partner got injured. I, I took most of it. That's back in the day where, you know, if you fell in a lift, and this is so old school, and I was probably concussed because I remember when I, once I fell, I could see my coach, but I couldn't talk to him. Like he was... <laughs> and So this is what we did. As soon as I was up on my feet, it was like, well, to eliminate the fear of lifting people, you got to go lift her again now. So and this is... What as I, you're concussed, so you don't remember it. Yeah. So... I remember falling once, the the biggest one, and then hitting my head, and then the fall the girl falls on top of you, so you kind of double wham oh, yourself, geez. right? And then, you know, I got up, okay, well, we don't want you to develop a fear of lifting, so we'll go lift again. The poor girl, I mean, I'm sure the last thing she wanted to do is be lifted again, right? And with Jamie, it was actually never in a competition. It was uh, during a show, and um, it went up the wrong way, my heel cut. It was at the MTS Center in Winnipeg uh closer to the end of our career and i was bleeding a little bit i got up and kept going did another lift because yeah, i was part of the routine and the skater that skated after us which will remain nameless um you know people started to stand up i was like walking on water he's not dead he's alive <laughs> he's walking he's sk- still skating yeah. people we had a standing ovation so we crisscrossed in the dark because after that it was his number and he said where to get, um, you'd do anything to get a standing ovation. Uh, meanwhile, I got blood coming down my <laughs> neck, it's very individualist sport. <laughs> uh, that was in a yeah. that was wasn't a show, that wasn't a competition, yeah. I know, but there's still competition to see who gets the biggest applause. Oh, really? Uh, we're a bunch of divas. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I we got to talk to you about the Olympics because Greg's and I talk a lot about the Olympics, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I love the Olympics, I love the idea. I would have killed to be a member of any Olympic sport, oh, any yeah. Olympic team. It's it is for me. I know there's issues and you know, every, there's, there's drugs and all that stuff, but it, is a, it is, can be so special. So when you were out there performing, your final performance, did, did you know that you were in the zone, that you were the two of you were just dialed in? Because I've, I've watched it live, and since we were a conference, I've watched it over a few times, uh, the, the white shirts and all that. I know it all that you've done. But did you know that that was your time? You were ready. You talked about the preparation, but because it must have been such a feeling to have at that moment.
3: Well, when you wake up in the morning and you tell yourself, this is the day I might become Olympic champion, like there's a lot of thoughts that goes into your mind. And I remember going to the morning skate and feeling good, feeling all right, you know, just normal. And then after that, having a hard time breathing all day, which, you know, is just like short of breath because you're so anxious. And then you go to the cafeteria and try to eat something. And the first thing that goes down and wants to go back up, you go try to take a nap, which is really just staring at the wall and then you have your program for like running through your head. It's like a, a, you know, a movie just going back and forth. Once you're done your program, it goes back to the beginning and it's turning. It's it's a, like a little hamster going through the wheel. And then uh, the worst part is to to wait for the bus to to get to the rink. And it's, you get about a 20 minute, 25 minute bus ride. And then it's very silent. There's nothing to say, you know, you just can't say anything. I'm talking about it now. I'm getting nervous. Like it's so intense. And we got there and it was a, a kind of a different night because the Russians, usually there's a kind of a non-written rule about where you warm up in the rink. So the first day of the competition, you get there, you pick a corner and then nobody goes around. You just don't see the other teams. You know, you just don't pass, uh, cross path. So that night we started warming up and the Russians came to warm up right beside us. So and try they to were, get in your head. Well, uh, yes, Absolutely. And so if I'd stretch one muscle, he would stretch the same muscle. They were basically imitating us. And I've competed against these guys for years and they've never done that. So I was a person that was extremely focused, so I didn't pay attention too much to it, even though the guy was right beside me. And Jamie thought it was fantastic that we had friends to warm up with. (laughs) 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 And it's all about perspective. It's not what happens to you, but how you look at it. So. The, then you go put on your 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 outfit and and then you put on your skate and then you know you're hurt like cattle on the side of the on the side of the ice and then you just go on warm up went on, warm up went out and as planned until there was a collision between the Russian team and Jamie, and nobody remembers that. But you know if you go on YouTube and yeah, the, I remember the, it. it. It was it was huge and I didn't see it happening, and um, I saw it after the competition on a video and I, I I'm glad I didn't see it happening because never in a million years. I would have thought that she would have been able to compete. But because I didn't see it, we stuck to the game plan. I I didn't even pay attention to the fact that she might have had a broken rib because I didn't know, I didn't see it. And so we stuck to the plan and the music started. And I remember saying to her, just like home, because we had little keywords every time at the same exact second, no conversation, just keywords that we would say on a Monday, on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday, on a Thursday, and just like home Meant to us, like just imagine the Royal Glenora. Try to erase the Olympic rings. Try to erase that there's 17,000 people in the rink, and this is the four and a half minutes that's given to you. And there's nine people that are going to decide if you're a success or a failure. Like it's it comes down to that, and you yeah. have one chance. I don't have Jason Strudwick covering up for me because I cuffed up the puck in the neutral sure. zone. Well, usually he's coughing it up. Some <laughs> people are coughing up right <laughs> So the music started and we did the first element. And as soon as we landed the first element, the rest is a blur. It's like four and a half minute condensed in, in 15 seconds. And as soon as the music ended up, I started seeing faces again in the stands. So to answer the question, basically, yes, there was a, a moment there that we were so deep into the zone that there's n- even if I would have tried to fall that day, it wouldn't have happened something would have held me up. It was unbelievable. And we've had great skates, but never under s- those circumstances. And that's why the Olympics are so special because it's only once a year, once every four years. And four years is a long oh, time oh, and yeah. a lot of money. If you're going to screw up, you have to wait four years and spend another grand to have another chance like that. And um, and then, I mean, from the time we were done skating to the time that the marks came out, that, that three or four minutes was worth... Every penny. And I moved away from home at the age of 12, so I could do that. You know, 12 is a pretty young age yeah. to go live with another family an hour away from home. And an hour when you live in the city, it's okay, but an hour when you live where I lived, it's it's 90 kilometers. It's, it's you know, it's long. So I stayed with a family, and, and the first year I cried myself to bed every Sunday night because I just spent the weekend with my parents, and then that Sunday I'd be back on the bus and on the greyhound and go to the family that I, you know that they were good to me but they were not my family and the decision to move to montreal at 18 the decision to move to edmonton the year before the olympics those were big life changing decisions and that 3 minutes before the marks came out and you talked about yes we were stolen from that moment like that moment where the canadian national anthem is playing this was taken away from me from, from uh, corrupted people but that moment that 3 minutes was that's my nobody can take that away from us. And I will never relive that as as an athlete. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter.
2: So I do want to go back to the marks come up and you're like, oh, my goodness. And I remember like it was a. it became the massive story. And then, you know, it was it was it was almost like a movie really in itself. In the Olympics, there's there's redemption because in movies and in, in athletes, it's people fall down and then they get back up. But this one was very different. I found like you know United States, and I remember you guys, Bob Costas. You're on his show, and, and you're all over the place. But I know Dave Pelche is
3: a really fiery guy,
2: so I want I want the honest truth. When you get off and the marks come up, like how livid were you?
3: Actually, Jamie was more mad. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just happy everything was over. Oh, okay. Because uh, I didn't, I didn't. It's six months prior to that, and you always ask yourself. You know, on that day, who's going to show up? Is it going to be the guy that's going to choke? Or is it going to be the athlete that's going to step up and embrace the moment and perform? And I was just so happy that the right athlete showed up that day. And to be honest, when we stepped on the ice to take the program, the Russians were skating right before us. And so the marks at the time were on a 6.0 scale, 6.0 being perfect. I was expecting them through, you know, History for them to have technical mark five eight five nines, but then when I saw five sevens, then I knew they made a mistake because we don't watch them. You know, we don't watch okay. the prior skate because yeah. we we are kind of in our own bubble. But I saw five seven and I said, oh, the door is open. So to us, if we skated clean, which we did, it was it was ours. So that's why I was so happy at the end because I knew for sure that we were we won. The technical mark came out and. That's it, we you know I could see that the marks are better. then the artistic mark came out, and I could see they're pretty much similar, and then right beside on that little screen, it says the placement, and I think it came out before it came out on the big screen, so I saw second, and then I realized I was living my worst nightmare, which was you know coming second at the Olympics uh, by one judge, and I could see there's four uh place for first and. Five plays for a second. I could see it on the little screen in front of us. And to lose the Olympics, my one judge, by one person that Man. decided you're not the best that day was my worst nightmare. And I realized living my worst nightmare was not that bad hmm. because I did my job. I really was happy with what we did. And I was just happy it was over. It's after that we learned, I'd say about, I could feel there was something up at the press conference after. The Russians, uh, the Russians were on their toes or on their heels. I don't know. Uh, but there, were, there was a lot of tension between the American media because a lot of people knew what was happening. A lot of people knew from six months prior to the Olympics. Our coach knew. Our choreographer knew. Some of the judges knew. But nobody wanted to talk about it because they all said, if we talk about it, it's going to ruin the entire experience. Imagine if six months prior to the Olympics, I would have known that the competition was fixed. How am I supposed to train? Yeah, exactly. Every day. So the people around us did a great job to protect us from that information. So we would be able, and they were just hoping that, you know what, It's, 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 it's a story, it's a rumor, but maybe it's not true. But when it came out, then they went after it like wolves and then the next day well the next day that's when i learned that the judge the french judge went back to their hotel and just said look i was pressured to vote for the wrong team i i have to come out clean and then from there i just i had many different options presented to us i could bitch and moan i could feel like a victim or i can have fun with it and we decided to have fun with it without knowing without knowing where it was going to lead and the coc came to us the canadian olympic committee and said we're going to put a protest i said you do what you need to do i I want to go watch uh catriona lemay don't win i want to go watch some hockey games like i'm too busy i just want to be a normal person for the next two weeks and it took five days i had that given up on it and then phone rang it was our agent at the time he said come to my hotel they're going to announce you have the gold there was a lot of things happening behind the scene um that I was not privy of, or aware of, and I didn't seriously care. So not once did I really lose my temper. Jamie was really mad, but it was more like a roller coaster. Yeah, you know, that's amazing. Like there's yeah. very, there's
2: very few situations in pro sports that you can yeah. think of that mirror that. Like we, you know, there's been some scandals and in, uh, in, in soccer, obviously some betting scandals. And mm-hmm. but at, like to me, the Olympics is just different because it's. It's the best athletes in so many different sports all together at one time. Yeah. And, and truly the whole world's watching. Like the NHL is really big in, in North America and maybe a few places in Europe. But really, there's only like seven really good countries in hockey.
3: right? Is, it, is it even really big in the U.S.? Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's fair at times. Yeah, So it's just like when you look, I'm not sure that it'd be tough. And, and I, I do say, did you ever get to talk to the French judge?
3: I did. I'd say um, I saw her eight years later. Eight years later, I was in Paris for a competition. I was working some TV, and she was there, and um, I could see she was trying to avoid uh, me. And I made a point to go talk to her, but she couldn't even talk to me. She was crying too much. It was too much to her because I said to her, "Look, you know, I don't know what you felt like for the last eight years, but I have no, I don't feel bad for you. I feel like you were put in a very yeah. tough position, and the fact that." Some people out there put that person in particular kind of knew that they could control her. And it's not a good feeling, you know. No. And I do understand that she she went through a lot of exams to get there. And, you know, you have to remember, too, these Olympic judges have other life. Yeah, They're not, like, Olympic judges once every four years. That's all they do. And for them, they've worked hard to get there, too. And if she doesn't do what her boss is telling her to do, she's not going. Yeah. And she wanted to go. And so, I I'll, I'll. I respect that. I'll also, at least she. At least at the end, she did stand she, out. She, you right. know what? And I said, that's exactly what I said to her. I said if you would have spoken that night, uh, nothing would have changed. Yeah. So, I have no. I have very different feeling from uh, towards the person that made her do that. Oh yeah, I you would know? think so.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's say that <clears throat> that wouldn't have happened. You would have won the gold pure. You yeah. know, just just and the Russians would have been second to win for it. How do you think your life would have been different in that scenario? As opposed to what happened
3: uh, post
0: post Olympic career, I'm saying.
3: Oh, I would have we we uh, would have never had the pro career we had or the sponsors we had, and I'd be sitting here with uh, probably a half of my bank account. Uh, not <laughs> <laughs> it's no, but it's a very true story. I mean, we left Salt Lake City, and don't and I, I have no bad feeling talking about this because my parents have invested money. They didn't. They don't. They never had. I mean, you know, you, I invested 50 grand the money I didn't have to to have the right to compete at the Olympics mm-hmm. without knowing that it's you're going to have a return in that investment. Yeah. You know, it's not like you're buying a GIC you, right. or, you know, I'm putting in 50 grand into this and I might come out with nothing but a life experience. Okay, well, you got to do it. You got to do it. So I did it. And the fact that this story was attached to the gold medal gave us... So much more exposure, and the fact that the Olympics were in the United States. Mm-hmm. If it would have happened in Czechoslo- uh, Republic, Czech, sure. Czech Republic, Czech uh, Republic, not I mean nothing. Right? Come on, let's be let's be real. NBC took this, and plus the fact that it was Russia, and oh, it was in America, and the Cold War. I mean, they were yeah. talking Cold War. I mean, we're Canadian. We're not. I mean, you know, we're not technically part of that Cold War. The f- all of this put together, and the fact that we had fun with it, and we never you know, complain about the fact that, oh, it's not fair. We just had fun with it. Yeah. And that created a storm that gave us so much more financial opportunities. And our fee per show went up. And it's it was, it was a good time. It was really a great time. We ended up on jail. I I remember the first time we were on jail. I know we were still in Salt Lake City. And I, I made a joke and it was through satellite. And I made a joke. I had a joke prepared, you know. And uh, he laughed and I could hear the audience laugh. Yeah. And after the interview... He said, I'm sending in the jet, and you're going to come on my show. So we ended up being on the private jet of Jay Leno, flew to Burbank, taped the show, and Charlie Sheen was on it at the time <laughs> when he was still normal, and then flew back uh, an hour later because it's taped around 4 o'clock, and we watched that night from Salt Lake. Crazy. And so you can't buy yeah. that kind of exposure. Yeah. But if I would have played the victim, never in a million years would anybody would have you know yeah. wanted to see my face. Yeah, so. no, that's that's that, you know that's a great point. Uh, we are live, uh, the Real Life Podcast, with David Pelche, Olympic
2: gold medalist. Uh, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we have uh, rapid fire. It's part of the segment. And you, there's no sitting on the fence. You answer every question yeah. uh, when we return. Gregor Strudwick <laughs> and Pelche. Here on the Real Life Podcast, brought to you by Finning Canada, all the parts you need. Finning.
0: It's late, and you just finished a full day of work. Your equipment is done for the day, and tomorrow, bright and early, you start all over again. You know what you need to keep it running smoothly, but there's not a break in the schedule to make that happen. With over 1.4 million cat parts at your fingertips on parts.cat.com, getting that part just became easier. Any device, anytime, anywhere. Get what you need, when you need it. Order today, parts.cat.com.
2: We return on the Real Life Podcast brought to you by Finning Canada. They got to get you a hoodie that's better than that one you're wearing, Strud. So we'll have to talk to the fans at, uh, <laughs> at Finning because
0: because
2: that one's, uh, I'm not sure. Although Jesse has this, what are you guys, Michigan fans? What's going on here?
0: Yeah, we went to the same school. We uh, the same school. Uh, yeah, they
2: were in the same class. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: we might have to get Jesse on one time and talk about the times he kept robbing struds in, uh, in hockey school. Stole my lunch money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so. These are a few questions, and Shred's always gets a fifth one, so I don't know what it is. So, okay. here uh, and you have to answer this honestly, okay? Sure. All right, your celebrity crush. Oh, so
3: many. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the French actress Marion Cotillard. Oh. Have you, n- do you know who we, she where is? Know, no. Where no. is she from? Uh, yeah, yeah, she did that movie um, with Brad Pitt, the one that just came out. Come on. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Allied. Allied? Yes. Yes. Okay. It's, she plays a, a German spy. Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. And she uh, did the the movie Is It Piaf? Uh, oh, she's beautiful. She beautiful. beautiful. And she's French. Okay. okay. Oh, nice. So now, we can actually understand each other. What, <laughs> what
2: What is your guilty pleasure, either music or food?
3: Can music be a guilty pleasure? Well, person? you know, like a certain
0: song that you're
2: not proud of, but you sing it all the time.
0: Like Meet He's always well, whispering <laughs> Mitsu around. Is there someone you, uh, like a one-hit wonder song?
2: There
3: is a One Direction song. Uh, the story of my life. Oh, I love that song, You too. love that oh, song, too? Oh, I love too? it, yeah. yeah. I, I love I'm not wonder. even guilty. Does that <laughs> count? <laughs> yeah, no, that I counts. do get guilty because I, if I buy a box of Pringles... Oh, yeah, yeah, they don't last long. So I'm I'm not even guilty about that. You know what? I'm not guilty about anything I do. I got a lot of pleasure and I'm not guilty about (laughs) it. Screw it. Uh,
2: Bruno Mars or Justin Timberlake?
3: Oh, Justin Timberlake. Oh,
2: wow. We don't like the song. Actually, wait a minute. Bruno
3: Mars is pretty good, but no, I'd say Justin Timberlake. We don't
0: like the song Can't Stop the Feeling. I love that song.
2: Hey, this isn't your five
3: questions. I know, but I'm I'm challenging him
0: because he's he's lying. Is (laughs) that the one song you don't like of Justin Timberlake? Hey,
3: everybody is allowed to have a to to lay an egg once in a while and that stop the feeling thing. (laughs) That's just no. That's that's you laid an egg on that one. Kurt
2: Browning, Elvis Stoiko, who is better?
3: Wow. Okay. Um Wow. Two different type. Um one was a better competitor than the other one. So being uh, being able to compete is part of being talented. Um, who is a better natural skater, Kurt Browning? Who is a better competitor? And I hate to say it because Kurt Browning is a four-time world champion, but Stoiko was pretty much a machine day in, day out. But <laughs> uh, very different, though, in their styles, right? Like, but I have to pick one. So huh. my favorite was Kurt Browning okay. always. Yeah.
0: You're the skating coach for the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, if you would have been the skating coach when I was there, uh, what thing would you have worked on on my stride?
3: Yes. <laughs> oh wow! You're probably a big guy like you, probably too high. I th- You're probably just too high up on your knees.
0: So what does that mean? Like I, I talk in uh, you know normal hockey player terms. I have to bend my knees more or what?
3: Well, the more you bend, okay. the more your muscle engage. Okay. Now, if you want your quad and your glute to engage, you need to be, they say, at a 90-degree a angle. Okay. But nobody skates at 90 degrees. Yeah. I mean, it's just like Taylor All is pretty much the closest I've seen to being always 90-degree to create okay. power. You're probably at 110, but you were probably way too high. Like 115? Oof. <laughs> <laughs> if you bend your knees, it's because somebody slashed you behind. <laughs> okay, so give an example.
0: Like for the people that are listening – who is skates like that in today's NHL? Like, and obviously not the owners, but like, would it would a uh, Brian Boyle, Toronto skates? Does he get down, or is he kind of a high skater? We're or? talking
3: about big guys. Huh?
0: Well, someone who skates kind of tall. Because I'm just trying to get people to understand. Because I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, for someone at home that says they skate high, who is an example of someone? Jason, like Jason,
3: help me out. How, how does he not understand my description? Oh know? no, I, I, I totally I do, understand but, it. Yeah? You know,
0: Maybe someone at home that uh, doesn't. Uh, you, you want
3: know, me to throw a player under the bus?
0: Well, no, I'm not offended. You said that to me. No, but look at Chris
3: Pronger. Yeah, Chris Pronger was a fantastic demon, but was he a guy that could, you know, carry the puck, load his leg, and just explode and you know join the rush? That's that was not his game. So it all depends what type of personality and what type of player and what's your role, right?
0: right? Yeah, some of us relied on just pure skill. (laughs) Yeah, now I I, I do want to get into one
3: thing. Uh,
2: that You have a skill set, and I remember you uh, laughing uh, the first time Conor McDavid came to Edmonton. David Pelche said, uh, Conrad McDavid came up to him and said, well, hey, because he was a skating coach, he was that rookie camp, what can I do to help you? He's like, kid, there's nothing I can do to help you. You're an <laughs> unbelievable skater. He told me that you do something in practice that that's what he's challenged, that you take on one skate and you draw a fish. I do, yeah. On one blade, yeah. never turning. And McDavid, who most would agree is the greatest skater in the NHL right now, he, he like that's his biggest thing to do. Like so, because I I visualize a fish, right? And if we just talk, you know, like you see a fish and it kind of curls down, then it comes up, and then it's almost like that that ninety that turn at the, at the tail. How do you do that?
3: It's um, well, you've seen what a Jesus fish look like. Yes, you know, some people have it at the back of their car. It looks exactly like that. Okay, and it's um, oh, how can I do it? That's well, you don't have cameras, eh? and that's in these podcasts. It's it's a nudge control, and it it happens real quick. Yeah, like it's pretty much a second, and. I I do something with my feet and then they look on the ice and there it is. It's a Jesus fish. Hallelujah. (laughs) (laughs) And I've never seen anyone except for obviously most figure skaters that can do it. I've never seen a hockey player that can do it.
2: Well, now, edge work is something that has really become talked about a lot more in hockey circles, right? And hockey players, I think, why you have so much respect in, in the hockey world is your ability to do your edge work. So when you're teaching young kids, like, Parents, you play kids in hockey. You put them in figure skating. Now, I took figure skating as a kid, but I never got to the level where I was competing. But I did like speed, and you do all the badges: novice and dance one, two, three. Yeah. I don't ever remember doing any sort yeah. of real type of edge work. Right. Yeah. So when do you work on edge work as a figure skater, and when should hockey kids work on edge work?
3: Oh, I, it's when I started doing power skating. I, you know, I was working with a company, and I wanted to do that's what I thought was lacking in their program. They had a fantastic program, but they had nothing offering for young kids to do edge work. And I remember they said, well, no, kids can't handle edge until, you know, they're too young, they're too young. Well, that's the first thing we do when we start learning how to skate. Like the learn to skate program is, there's a lot of inside edge, outside edge work. And what I find in hockey is, um, well, first of all, a lot of, you know, because of the system we have, a lot of coaches just don't know how to teach. Edge work. Edge work. That's it. That's all. I believe if you're a young guy and you're not afraid of your outside edge, because a lot of hockey players will shy away from that outside edge because it's challenging. So it's always nice and easy to go on that inside and ride that. Every every kid wants to can do that. Every kid, but it's not everybody that can go on the outside edge. So if you start challenging yourself from a young age to go outside edge forward, outside edge backward, and there's different type of exercises that I learned from, you know, learn to skate program that the program you've done when you were a kid, and they're not that complicated. But you, the only limits that the kids have are the one that the adults put on the kids. I believe that, you know, some obviously are more talented than the others, but you throw everything at them. And because they have no ego, yeah. they don't worry about anything. And I've I've learned that from even a golf pro. And a golf pro when he'll teach a kid, he doesn't the kid doesn't care what he looks like. So when you ask a kid to do one exercise that might look very strange. The kid will do it without uh, yeah. worrying about what he looks like. And kids in hockey are the same. Just throw everything at them and see what comes out and then go from there. Don't say you're too young to do an edge, you're too young to do this, or you're too young to, to do you know to do that. That's that's the limitation you're putting on the kids, and that's not fair. Dave Pelche, it's been fantastic to have
2: you on the, the Real Life Podcast brought to you by Finning. Uh, best of luck, uh, hopefully you avoid going 0 and nine in your career in, uh, in shootouts <laughs> i quit the in mens I, league <laughs> i quit right? mens I, league you don't you don't quit you don't put a limit on yourself you got to yeah, go out yeah. and practice get struds in goal maybe right so, to build up what? your confidence
0: well, maybe a teach maybe i could teach him how to do it you yeah, playing beer league I am still playing. Yeah, but I was last game I was minus nine. I had two points and we lost uh, thirteen or two. I was minus nine with two points. Don't give up. How do you guys give up thirteen goals in men's no, league? Believe me, I earned every one of those minuses. <laughs> it was probably the worst hockey game I've ever played in my life. It was terrible. <gasps> oh, that's I got another game coming up next week. I got. Was be Tom alerted. Gilbert your partner? <laughs> no, believe me. I thought about it. I sent him a text after. He said, "You know what? I wiped it. I made you look like a dream as a partner today." <laughs>
3: Well, Dave, continue. Now, are you skating at all anymore? Do you still do tours? I actually did uh, four or five shows in Japan in January. Wow. Yeah, I I, I took it hard, too. It's on YouTube. Oh. oh, yeah. I I was not carrying anyone, though. It was into a production number, and I really pushed an edge a little too far, and yeah. I slid. And, you know, in the U.S., it's funny, man. It- if you had a follow spot on you and you fell, like the guy would be smart enough to turn it uh, off in you. Japan. No, they just they <laughs> keep. <laughs> like, Here you go, buddy. you go. I was wearing a cream, like I'd say half and half, uh, maybe eighteen percent color, like cream, coffee, cream uh, outfit too. I just, I, I just, at forty-two, you just don't look good in these outfits. Is that uh-huh. in or silk? Um, cashmere, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: do you have one outfit? Because I, I, I can tell you the honest truth, like. Why I quit figure skating. And and I've put the picture up on social media kind of as a joke before. And uh, I was, because t- they made, and I was in a big group, boys and girls, and everybody dressed the same. <laughs> and I had to wear this navy blue. I had a big heart on my heart, and then I had like a heart on my head. And it was the worst. Oh, and, I, yeah. and I remember just being like, hey, you know what? Yeah, I'm done. Like, I'm not, f- I came home and I remember telling mom and, I'm like, ma'am, I don't think I want to figure skate. And it wasn't for a while until I said, well, it's because I don't want to dress like the girls. I I think I was 11 years old. And at that point, it's like, well, I want to, you know. And, I, and I'm totally okay with how you dress. But that was the worst outfit I've ever seen. Now I laugh about it. It's kind of a joke. But well, that if time, you if you, you got a
3: minute, like, I can resume basically a lifetime of bad, just just terrible, just terrible decision. Just bad outfits, see-through stuff, uh, <laughs> uh, leggings. It's like, just unbelievable. Just, I want to cry thinking about it. Do you have any it. pictures of these? Oh yeah, I do. Because I'm going
2: to get you to send me some. Because okay. we're going to put them up on, in on the podcast. I'll, just I'll so send you.
3: I mean, the worst of of it all, and then and then until you turn professional, and you're getting paid a crazy amount of money to skate, which is crazy. And then they show up with you know leopard, uh, velvet, fuchsia. And then your friends are going, you're wearing that? I said, Well, if you get paid the same amount of money as I'm (laughs) getting paid, you'd wear anything too. (laughs)
2: That's nice. I love it. Uh, Dave, we
3: really appreciate it. Thanks for this. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: Dave Pelche. That's the Real Life Podcast with Jason Greger. Jason Struggle brought to you as always by Finning Cannon.